Welcome. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, join me at verses 17 through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 20. We will be talking on the subject of what is our hope, glory, and joy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 through 20. The Bible says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? It is, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Soon after the church at Thessalonica was started, Paul was forced to leave. The unbelieving Jews had created problems for some of the members of uh, the, the people there. And I would have you turn over here to Acts chapter 17. And we can see what happens. Acts chapter 17 beginning in verse 5. Acts 17, beginning in verse 5, we see exactly what was taking place. He says, the Bible says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, so that when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And so what had happened is that the unbelieving Jews created this huge uproar. And, uh, and, and we saw in the previous verses here about how the unbelieving Jews persecuted. That we, we actually saw the, the unbelieving Jews sin. Uh, in the last message here, and uh, they have created this problem, and Paul and Silas have now been sent away. Uh, and that's what, that's what he's talking about here in this past passage. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul reflects upon their abrupt departure, how it created an eager desire to see them again within him, as we saw in verse 17, how Satan had hindered them from fulfilling the task that was laid before them in verse 18 and prompting him to ask the question, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Well, we do well. We do well to ask ourselves the same question. What is our hope? For what do we long for and what do we long with? A desire and an expectation. What do we want to see happen? What is our desires? What are our expectations? What is our hope? What is our joy, as the text says? What gives us true happiness 
and satisfaction that's deep-seated down in our emotions that our circumstances cannot touch. What is the crown of rejoicing? We learn in Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What provides the highest degree of joy in our lives? Well, is our answer the same as Paul? And then should it be? Is our answer the same as Paul, or should it be? As we consider what our answer should be, let's examine more closely the text and, and see what answer Paul gave. So number one, you have Paul's hope, glory, and joy. Number one, Paul's hope, glory, and joy. And there's three parts to this. And the first is this, we read of his desire to see them. He says in verse 17, he says, He had been taken away from them. He had been taken away from them. He is referring to his necessary departure. As we wrote, read in Acts 10 or Acts 17, verse 10, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now he uses a word that implies a painful bereavement. A painful bereavement, like a child who has been taken away from his or her parents. That comes from Barnes Notes, a very, uh, uh, Barnes is a Puritan commentator talking about the weight of this word. It, it's this ripping away, this bereavement that takes place, like taking away a screaming child from its screaming parent. Uh, he had been taken away from their presence. Notice it says, though, in the text, only for a short time only for a short time, exactly how long, we don't know how long it was, but probably no more than a year, if not mere months. And then it says he endeavored, also in verse 17, endeavored more eagerly to see them with, with great desire, with great desire. He repeated the emphasis of his longing for them. Notice, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor more eagerly to see your face with great desire. So you have two things here. We, we want to, we endeavor more eagerly with great desire. So this is a, this is something that he really, really wants to do. He endeavors more eagerly with great desire. And I want you to see he desi his desire likely is heightened by the manner in which he had to leave them. So if you think about the idea that he was ripped away. He was ripped away in a way of bereavement, in a way of great consternation, in a way of great torment. Juxtapose that to the opposite as a reunion. He wants to come back to them with more emotion, with more raw passion than, than that which he experienced when he was taken away. So, you know, it, it he was taken away severely, and he wants to come back eagerly with the most uh, awesome of desires. He is longing for them. So we, we see of his desire to see them. He wants to see them, and we learn the second part of this, Paul's hope and his glory and his joy, is that we learn what prevented him, that old stumbling block. He wanted to come to them time and time again, it says in verse 18, either from Berea or from Athens, but we know this much. Whether he is coming from Berea where he departed to or if he's coming from Berea via Athens back, as some suspect, 
the reality of it is he has tried time and time again, but he has been hindered. Something has caused pause. Something has prevented it from taking place, except it's not something, it's someone. It's someone, and it's interesting to me that it uses the word Satan who hindered him. Now, the Hebrew word Satan is uh, ha-satan, ha-satan. And that means stumbling block. It means stumbling block. And so it's literally the idea that as he was trying to come, he would fall. He would trip. He would be delayed. He would go in a different direction. Instead of going forward, he went down. Instead of going sideways, he went down. Instead of going up, he went down. Why? Because he's tripping over the devil's roadblock, constantly being hindered. He's, he attributes it to the persecution by the fellow Jews to Satan. So I want you to notice this is important. The Jews are the ones that are persecuting him. We saw in the previous message the sin of the Jews. The message title is the sin of unbelievers. And that is a true title, but it's specifically the unbelieving Jews. And on top of that, it was, as the text says, some of them. Some of them. So it's the some of them of the class of the unbelieving Jews. And so what is taking place, he attributes the persecution of these Jews to Satan. Okay? It was the unbelieving Jews who were hounding him. They were following him from place to place. Acts chapter 17 verse 5 says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, okay, that became envious. Now, not all Jews have not been persuaded, and not all Jews are envious. So I want to, I think there are some that would take this text and, and become anti Semitic. That is absolutely anathema. That is absolutely inappropriate. This is not speaking of the whole class of people. It said, those who were not persuaded, becoming anxious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring Paul and Silas out to the people. Now, if you'll go down to verse 13, or you can just listen to me. Acts 17, 13, it says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So these are Jewish zealots, so to speak. Um, and again, we're not talking about Jews in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. We're talking about Jews in ancient Greece, in, in Macedonia. And so what is taking place here is they are absolutely envious. They have not been persuaded by the preaching of the word. They are absolutely envious, and they have created this mob. So I want to make something very clear. Paul didn't do this. The unbelieving, envious Jews did this. And in Acts 14, if you step back in, in verse 19, it says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This is one of my favorite stories of Paul. It's the stoning at Lystra. Uh, there, uh, the Jews had already, you know, when Paul's preaching in, in Acts 17 and as he's writing here in 1 Thessalonians, he bears the marks of what took place at Lystra. I mean, he's got some serious scars from being stoned, and they stoned him so good that they thought he was dead. He was obviously unconscious, 
and uh, the the and and you know did was he breathing? I doubt it. Uh, perhaps he was. Maybe he was. I don't know. But they looked at him and they knew he was dead. And uh, the reality of it is, is that if he wasn't dead in their eyes, they would have kept stoning him. So they had convinced themselves that they had done him in. But the reality of, of it was is he was not done in. He never died. And then why this is my favorite, one of my favorite stories is he got back up and he went into the city. He went back in the same city where those people who stoned him were. Can you imagine the sight? Can you imagine the sight of him going back in there all bruised, bloodied, and beaten going back in there? Uh, and yet I just think of the courage, uh, the, the integrity, the fortitude, and the perseverance that he had. And uh, so they were possibly his thorn in the flesh even. It is conceivable this is the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about in other places. The messenger of Satan alluded to in other writings. The reality of it is, is they were constantly with him, hindering him. Uh, they had become envious. They were not persuaded. They had not received the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10, the Bible says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing I preached with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he, I pleaded, he says, with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. I want to say something about that, even though it's not our text today. So many Christians are praying and desiring and pleading with God to remove from them the difficulties of their life. The difficulties of their life. And yet, when they face those difficulties, they do not realize the biblical text says that it's in those difficulties that the strength of God is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ when we ourselves are uh, weak, are in a weak state, or have been weakened in our strength. And so Paul had concluded, having suffered so greatly, he had concluded that no matter what, that the power of Christ can rest upon me, I will take pleasure in my infirmities and in my reproaches and in my needs and in my persecutions and in my distresses for Christ's sake. This is something we should learn. We should apportion to our, uh, uh, yeah, not just apportion, we should make a part of our life this is part of it. We are missionaries as gospel uh, believers to a fallen world. And I'm going to tell you, the truth of the matter is, if, if the closer you stand to Jesus, the more arrows you're going to take from the enemy. And if you're on easy street not dealing with anything, I'm going to tell you, you're probably not really close to the captain of your salvation. You may know everything, you may have knowledge of this stuff. You may be the smartest person and the most experienced person in biblical knowledge, but where is your character? 
The problem today in the modern evangelical church from, and I believe, is the fact that we have people that think they can check off lists and that makes them okay, but where is the character? And character does not come from checking off a list. Character comes from experiencing what that list teaches. And here we see this magnificent character of Paul, already who gets up when he's stoned and goes back amidst the stoners, and he says that whether it is in, in reproach or needs or persecution or distress, if it's in Christ's sake, then I am going to do it, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. Here is a picture of a man who knew it all, experienced it all, and had the character of it, and he says, because I have all these things, the messenger of Satan has been sent to buffet me, lest I think too much of myself. And I will tell you, I'm old enough to have experienced this on my own, what Paul says that knowledge puffs up. And I have found that those who do not take seriously their relationship with the Lord in the building of character, where their character is in construction, where they listen to the faithful, tangible, visible preaching of the Word of God and support their local church. I have found those people struggle more than anything. And it's because they may have all the answers. They just don't have any character. They have no fortitude of will and no character of conscience to stand in the midst of great sorrow. You know, in the state that I live in here in Texas, we just celebrated Texas independence. And we all have a saying here in Texas that's called remember the Alamo. And when we talk about remembering the Alamo, we talk about the 186 men, Alamo defenders, that defended it to the death. They had character. And because of that, it became the battle cry that caused Texas to become a nation in 1836 and win its independence from the nation of Mexico. And so I want you to understand something. We love underdogs. We love the stories of the martyrs. We love the stories of people that persevere under the greatest circumstances. And here Paul says, I departed from you being literally ripped away. It, it's ripped even to my soul, my bone and sinew, but how much more I want to come back to you. And this was a man who was coming back that had been schooled in the school of persecution, infirmities, hard knocks, being, having things thrown at him, set at him, all kinds of things. And he is eager to come back. Whatever the price, he wanted to come back. And you know what? He had character. His character was greater than the lack of character of those that were persecuting him. And, and you know, the Thessalonian church not only was a model church, it had a model pastor. And we have a message on that. You see that at the end of, of uh, I believe it's chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see how he is a model pastor. He is a man of character. He will not be moved. All right? So Satan was the ultimate source behind the persecution suffered by the early church. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he says, Be sober, Peter this is, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he might devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
This is a reality. This is a reality. And uh, so you need to be sober. We must be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, is walking about seeking who he might devour. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says, Do not fear any of those things which you are um, about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. This whole concept that Christianity leads you to prosperity, that leads you to um, uh, anything but what the Bible says is not Christianity. The Christianity that Jesus Christ died for, the people He died for, is revealed completely in its totality in the Scripture. And there's no, there's no other source. There's no outside source. There's no interpretation. There's nothing. Once you know there's bazillions of interpretations of the Bible, there's only one meaning. The Bible means what it says, and it says what it means. And today our airways are full of people who don't know the truth, who don't know their words, and they have their thousands upon thousands, their ten thousands and ten thousands of adherents following them, wanting crumbs from the table of Christ. And they're the first ones picked off by the gospel. Picked off not by the gospel, but by the devil. You know, when a line goes, if you go watch any of those shows on television, like they used to have National Geographic, and they have the hunting videos, and you could see where the, the cheetah is going out to go get the antelope, or, or the lions are going out to go get the buffalo, the water buffalo, and so forth. They don't go pick off those in the middle of the herd. They go pick up their, those on the fringe. And I'm going to tell you what, the people on the fringe are still falling all over themselves today, getting picked off by every whim of doctrine. But those who stay with what the Word of God says, they are the ones that will rise up with wings like eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will faint, but they will not fall. That's what will happen. They will rise up on the wings of eagles because they are, fit, they are rich in the, in the teachings and the Word of God. And that's what made Paul so different than the rest of them. And that's why he is longing to go back to them, because surely he had to think, is it possible that what happened to me at Lystra, me going back into Thessalonia again, may happen to me again, what happened at Lystra? And he says, whatever difficulty I faced before, I am more eager to come to you than before. That's character. That is the character of the blood-bought, born-again person who has a relationship, a growing relationship with Christ and the Word of God as it is revealed in Scripture and nothing else. And not, I would have you know this as well. And notice that he is always in fellowship with the people of God. When he left uh, when he was taken from Thessalonica, it says in Acts 17, where did he go? He went to the synagogue. He was not a man that was out there having church on the couch. He was not a man out there having pajama church. He was not a man out there that was disassociated from the church where they have a little drink and a, have a little prayer and a little meal. That's not what he was. He was always yoked with the believers of Christ. This is, was the secret to who he was. He wasn't able to be carried away with every whim of doctrine. 
because he's heard somebody from a source we don't know anything about. No, he in reality, he in reality shows us truly what it is, I think in many ways, what to be a man's man looks like, what to be a courageous Christian looks like. He shows us this. He has no fear, no fear at all. Fear is not of the Lord. And so we discover then Paul's hope, his glory, and his joy. The Thessalonians in verse 19 were Paul's hope because he hoped to see them at the coming of the Lord, it says in verse 19. They were his joy or crown of rejoicing and anticipating an anticipation of seeing them in the presence of Jesus, he mentions. And they were his glory and joy, not just in the future, but as it says in verse 20, in the present, he says, you are our glory and joy. That's in the present. That's in the present tense. Why? Because they were being faithful. Because there's something you need to understand. The Thessalonian church was under great persecution. And those people didn't get up and leave and go somewhere else because there was division and there because there was riotousness and because there was brokenness and because they were being persecuted for their faith. They didn't leave their homes or their cities. They didn't give up on their church. They didn't surrender. They didn't go remember the Alamo. They said, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of them, they are standing in the face of persecution. And what better than their pastor to come back to them in the midst of that persecution? He says, you are truly our glory and joy because look how they stand. They stand without wavering. It doesn't matter what happens. They stand without wavering. Paul's hope, his glory, and joy were his brethren in Christ. His brethren in Christ, especially those who had taught and bought and brought to the, those, those he taught and brought to the Lord. Not just the Thessalonians, but others as well. If you look over here at Philippians chapter 1, or rather Philippians chapter 4, I have a message on this as uh, on we're doing a study on standing fast. Listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy, my crown, stand fast in the Lord. Christians don't run away from difficulty. Christians don't leave their churches because of hardship or because of disagreement. You know, I'm a married man. I've been married this summer 26 years. In that time, I've had many disagreements with my wife, but she is my visible, tangible, only wife. And I'm to give my life for her, as Paul says, we're the, Christ gave his life for the church. And I'm committed to her in thick or thin, in disagreement, or in total agreement. And there's more, much more agreement than there is disagreement. But the reality of it is, I don't take off and leave because we have a spat or we have a, a place of disagreement or there might be a day or two where our feelings are hurt and we don't talk so much. It's interesting that the Bible compares that relationship of a man and a woman to, uh, of, Christ, of Christ to His church. His church isn't perfect, but He doesn't leave it. Your church isn't perfect, and you shouldn't leave it either. You hear what I'm saying? Your church isn't perfect, and you shouldn't leave it either. 
because time heals wounds. And unless your church is a place where the pastor habitually will not preach the Word of God verse by verse, then you need to stay there. You need to stay there and love that church like Christ loves it, like you love your spouse. And you don't need to believe the lie that you're against organized religion. That is, that is one of the most foolish lies we hear today. I'm against organized religion. I don't need to go to church. I'm going to tell you something. Yes, you do. The Bible commanded it. Let's not be like some are in the habit of not going to church. Many people will say, I can't go to church because of this or because of that. You've fallen out of the habit of going to church. That's the bottom line. You need to be honest with yourself and honest with other people. And it most likely, in some cases, you found a bunch of sin in your own life. And so you probably have decided you're going to blame someone else for it. You're going to blame the pastor. You're going to blame somebody for saying that. I remember having a person that, that decided to quit coming to church for a while and when I pastored in West Texas because we had asked her where she had been. And for that reason alone, she and her husband and children kept quit attending our church. She took offense to that. Now I, didn't, now, I wasn't there when she was asked that. Maybe she was asked in an ugly manner, but that's absolutely ridiculous. But there, are some, but there are folks that do the same thing. They say, well, I just want this kind of preaching. Friends, I'm going to tell you what you need. The only kind of church to go to is a church where you've got a man that's on fire with the Word of God and will preach it in season, out of season, from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And if it's anything else, you don't need to be there or else you're just going to get a motivational speech. Church isn't a place where we gather for the purpose of just having fellowship. It's not just a place where we gather just so we can feel good about each other. You should, if the Word of God is preached, you should be wincing at, at for, in pain and weeping in joy because it has landed in the midst of you. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to the church and you're not hearing God speak to you and speaking into your spirit, that's not the preacher's fault. That's not the spirit's fault. There's something wrong with you. There's something spiritually wrong with you. And if you believe you're one of these kind of people that have learned everything there is to know about the church and there's everything to know about the preaching of the Word, if you do not feel that you're learning something new every time that you're in there, you need to keep going anyway because God's Word will not return void. Now, I guess that needed to be said in light of we live in such a culture today that's so weak. Paul here is willing to put his neck out for the sake of the gospel. We need some folks that are willing to do that for the church. They're willing to continue to go and be a part of the vision that God has cast. Go in there and love your pastor. I've always said this and I believe it. If you want a different pastor, pray for the one you got. If you want different church leadership, pray for the one you got. And quit praying about it. Start praying for them. Okay? So he, they were his joy, his crown of rejoicing. I tell you what, I would love to go to this church at Thessalonica, at Thessalonica. I've been asked many times, would you like to pastor the church at Corinth? I would probably rather pastor the church at Corinth than the church at Thessalonica because at least I could go in there and preach like I am right now and just, you know, just step on the toes. But at Thessalonica, it would be a much greater ministry because they were much more valuable. This, that, he, was, he longed for them because of their Christian testimony. They were awesome. They were His glory and His joy in the future and in the present. And He even gives them this beautiful doxology. He says, I'm going to see you in the future. He knew that His work amongst them stuck. 
I wish I could say the same. He knew that the work in them stuck. And if it works both ways at the coming of Christ, Paul would be the source of joy for those he taught, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Look what it says. He says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. That's talking about the Roman triumph of being brought in, carried in from kept the victors, carried in the, uh, the, law, the, uh, the losers from war as spoils of war. And it was brought as a tribute, a triumph to Caesar when returning generals would come back into Rome. Even Caesar would come in and have a, a triumph. And to the, the gospel, to those that are being saved, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. To those that are perishing, it's the stench of death. I want you to know something. The gospel is not just the good news. It's called the good news, the euangelion. The gospel means good news. But I'm going to tell you, to those that are lost, it's a death sentence. It is a death sentence. And more have fallen under the death sentence of the gospel than have risen to new life in the gospel because they fail to believe. They fail to believe. For whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And you need to look at what that whosoever means within the context of John 3, 16. Our, and so we saw what Paul's hope, glory, and joy were. Now I want to give you number two, our hope, glory, and joy. Number two, our hope, glory, and joy. Letter A, for some Christians it may be their possessions. Their hope is in the acquisition of material things. It may be their glory, their pride in it, in what they have obtained, their joy or happiness in the pleasure of such things that give them. But such things are perishable. Houses and lands, boots and blue jeans, all of that stuff. Books. I have found that in my age, I'm a collector. I'm a collector of boots. I'm a collector of of pens, I collect uh, airplane models, I collect library books. I have my whole life amassed a collection of things. But I will tell you this thing, all of those things are perishable. They're not going with me. The, the, such things are perishable and they are susceptible to theft. They draw us away from God, therefore it is a folly to have them as our hope, our glory, and joy. Now none of the things that I have are my glory hope and joy. My, probably the thing that I own that I'm, I would, would protect more than anything is my library that I have. I'm a man of books. There's not many people that have libraries or want one, but I have one. Uh, I, that's always the, that's the most important thing I, I materially own is my library to me. I don't think anyone's going to come steal it. Um, I'm, I'm not too worried about it. But the reality of it is it, it's not my hope. It's not my glory and joy, but people have glory and hope and joy in things that are perishable. And it's a shame. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, He says in verse 19 through 21, He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and, and, therewith, uh, and, there, 
and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For which, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. In verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be uh, loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. So quit trying to try. You, you can't. You cannot serve both God and mammon. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is it not the Father, is, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Even the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who looks to God does the will of God and it abides forever. And so maybe they, they, their joy, their hope, their glory is their job. Their hope is the advancement in their career. Their glory or pride is in how far they've come or their joy is in the happiness of, of the money, the power and the prestige that they have obtained. But, you know, our jobs and all that they can bring us are fleeting, especially in today's job market with frequent downsizing, the lack of company loyalty to of the employees, just moving from place to place. My wife and my, my dad all worked for one company their whole lives. Both of them were oil men. Their whole adult lives, they only worked for one company. Only one. Only one company. And we said years ago that the days of, of the oil man working for one company are gone because companies get bought up, they get sold, they, and, and so forth. Um, how much more through the pandemic? How many businesses have closed? And, and how many times have, have people who who have worked for one company their whole life find themselves working for another one simply because of necessity, because the job they once had is gone, and they may have, a, have risen to great prestige. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Everything will be gone. Another place that fi folks find their hope and their glory and their joy is their families. Their families. Uh, their glory is what their families have become. Their joy is the relationship they enjoy with their families. The their hope is that their families, what it, they may become, while certainly more noble uh, and rewarding than possessions or jobs. Even our families are limited in the joys and glories they can bring. Why? Because of death. Death ends our relationship with families, and if they are not Christians, what, what does that do to our hope? Because we will never see them again, ever. There is a great gulf fixed. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, He says, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He says in chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and he said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who is my brother? And he stretched out his hands toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and, and sister and mother. I feel closer to my church family than my earthly family. I truly do. I always have. There's relationships through the course of, 
of 20 years of preaching, of pastoring, uh, of relationships with people in every place that are, to me, uh, the most precious. And uh, I understand what Paul means when he talks about them from his, his hope, his glory, and joy. But that should not be our hope, glory, and joy in the context here of just our families. Uh, I'm going to miss church today. I've got somebody coming into town, and I can't you know, bring them to church with you. Introduce them to the church. Let them see what you do on Sunday. Let them come worship with you instead of staying home. You know, have lunch at 1 or, or ask them, you know, can we eat a little later? Let's go to church this morning. I want you to, I want you to meet, uh, meet, meet the people that I worship with, my family that takes care of me when you're not here. Uh, for all Christians, what it should be is our hope should be to see each other in heaven. That's the reality. Our hope should be to see each other in heaven, to see each other with Jesus in the presence of the Lord at His coming. I don't think this is a conscious thought for the church today. Uh, this, this even strikes me myself, to, to think of them beyond this world. I got them ready for the next one, but to think of being with them in the next place, to see each other with Jesus in the presence of the Lord at His coming. What a wonderful occasion. What a, what a gracious reunion. Our glory should be seeing each other in the presence of the Lord, serving the Lord faithfully now and being glorified together with Jesus when He comes. Look here in 2 Thessalonians. Just turn over to the right. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Look what it says. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of His calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and that the work of faith with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, glorified in you, and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I mean, that's just a lesson right there how we should look at each other. That's our, that should be our glory. And then our joy should be the happiness coming from working together in the Lord, the joy experienced by John when he saw others walking with him. In 2 John 4, it says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received the commandments from the Father. In 3 John 3-4, through 4, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that was in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I will tell you, I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. I have no greater joy than when people walk in truth. And unfortunately, I find I have no greater anger than when they don't. I've, I, fortunately, I fortunately still am a work in progress. A work in progress. Because I don't suffer those very well who don't walk in truth. I just don't. And he says here, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Do you walk in truth? Do you care that people walk in truth? The joy Paul experienced when he told of the faithfulness of the Thessalonians is marked right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, says, 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and, per and, perfect what, and perfect what is lacking in your faith. What a pastoral prayer and thought. This is amazing. They got it. They understood it. They got the message. They're living in it. They consider it pure joy in the midst of their persecution, knowing that it is perfecting in them perseverance and righteousness and knowledge and character. They're not running away to be outside the world. They're in the world. They're not of it. And it's making a difference. And it's giving such comfort to the Apostle Paul because they walk in truth. So in conclusion, our hope and glory and joy should be in that which is eternal. Otherwise, we're setting ourselves up for et eternal disappointment and eventual disappointment before that. Our possessions, our jobs, our families cannot provide true hope, glory, and joy. At best, they can what they offer is temporary, and at worst, they provide much disappointment and draw us away from God. And since much of our hope and glory and joy both now and in eternity is through our brethren, then it is absolutely important that we nurture and strengthen our relationships. It is imperative that we seek to bring others to Christ, including those in our physical families. Such efforts not only bring us closer to each other, but to God, because we're the missionaries in our own family, and it produces that which lasts for eternity. And then we shall truly be able to say to each other, for you are our glory, our glory and joy. Let me ask this question. Can you say that now? Can you say that now? Father, I thank you for this word. This is a testing word. Uh, this, is a, this is a word of exhortation. It is a word of conviction. Lord, we must do better to live up to the example of the Thessalonian church. And we must take our eyes off of what is temporal and put it upon what is eternal and the one who is behind eternity, Christ Jesus Himself, and find our hope and our joy and our glory in Him and His work in the lives of His children, all those who believe, all those who savingly believe. And all I know is that it's, it is my job vocationally from your calling to preach the gospel. The gospel is declared in this message, if you do not believe, you will perish. What is it that you are to believe? That it, Christ is Lord, and that He is God, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross, having lived a perfect life, being born of a virgin. And He died for the sins of anyone and everyone who would call upon His name in saving faith and repentance. And He took upon Himself their sin debt and their sin. And He descended into hell. 
after having died and took the keys of death and presented them to his Father in heaven. And God said it was a good work. And on the third day he raised him from the dead, having come back to prepare a place for us in heaven, having purchased a place for us on the earth through the cross. And that if anyone believes in him for their eternal life, for their salvation, and chooses by faith to follow Him, and that faith is evidenced by good works in Christ Jesus, and perseveres to the end because it is a saving faith to the end. That, Father, it is those who truly can have the greatest joy, hope, and glory in Christ Jesus. All others have nothing to fear in the short term, but everything to fear in the long term. Because they find their hope and their joy and their glory in this world. And like them, this world will suffer everlasting destruction because they choose not to take Christ as their Savior. They do not exercise the responsibility to take what they've heard, to repent and to believe. It is my prayer that wherever this message winds up, that, Father, there will be people repenting and believing because you have called them to salvation. It is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you and have a very, very good week.